You know who we are. You know what we do? In actuality, I would say, the Jedi hunt themselves. Do you know the key to hunting Jedi, friend? It is patience. Jedi cannot help what they are. Their compassion leaves a trail. Welcome everyone from across the universe to the Wampa's Lair podcast. Star Wars is for everyone, so pull up a chair, get comfortable, and join the conversation with your hosts, Carl LeClaire and Jason Hunt, here in the Wampa's Lair. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampa's Lair podcast. This is episode number 526, Rise of the Red Blade. I am, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, the first brother to my second brother, we've got Carl LeClaire. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Jason, it's so good to be back talking some Star Wars novels. And if we're going to be talking Star Wars literature, we can do this with none other than... The uh, the man who holds a doctorate in Star Wars canon created just for him, none other than my buddy <laughs> and your pal, Mr. Greg Cass. Excuse me, Dr. Greg Cass of Ion Canon. Hey, Greg, <laughs> welcome back. Hi, guys. Oh, it's it's so great to be invited back. Um, it's funny when you do episodes that I like listen to and I talk in my car as if I'm the third guest or some <laughs> such. But when I'm actually live on air with you, it's it's much fulfilling. So thanks for having me back. Very excited to talk about this book. <laughs> so so be be honest, Greg. How often when you're talking to us like you're like you're the third host, are you just yelling at us for getting it all wrong? Um <laughs> Not not that often. I've found myself defending Alan Dean Foster lately, oh. so we won't throw throw him under our bus for the fifth show in a row or yeah, something. Yeah, sorry, but, Greg. Uh, I actually, I'm going to say that's really a joke. I also don't think Splinter of the Mind's Eyes is, is that good and would not be one I'd recommend people read if they're starting out in Star Wars. So, uh, But it, it has Fair been enough. funny to hear you dragging it. <laughs> uh, I know. For, for uh, being pretty good about always being positive, Jason, I, I certainly have a negative streak when it comes to splinter of the mind's eye um <laughs> i have no i have no opinion i've never read the book well, so don't don't um, do yourself i will a take your, and your... Read it. yeah it's garbage yeah so but you know what is not garbage <laughs> delilah dawson's rise of the red blade which we will be talking about on this episode um one of uh by goodness, this this novel came out what just a few months back i want to uh, i forgot to write down when it came out but i know it was this year and yep. just um, a couple months ago. So Bye. preface with, of course, saying that this this conversation will be filled with spoilers. So if you have not read Delilah Dawson's Rise of the Red Blade and you want to go into that experience spoiler free, certainly come back and check out this episode afterwards. If you've not read it and you just want to know some of the cool stuff in it, feel free to listen in. Um, and uh, and of course, if you have read it, hopefully this will add some enjoyment to the, to your own experience of that book. Uh Greg, I know you were uh, you were the first of my friends to read it, and uh, I was really surprised that uh, y- you know you-, you messaged myself and-, and our friend Ben saying how much you really liked this book, and uh, 
I, and I feel like whenever you when you are quick to say something like that, it, it, to me, it's always high high praise because I think you're. I mean, an incredibly bright person. You're a literature professor by by profession, and uh, when you when you get excited about a book, it always really piques my own interest. Uh, so, you know, what was? I mean, I know it's been a, been a minute since we've all kind of finished reading it, but if you can recall, what was it kind of that just grabbed you so much that that kind of gave it such high praise? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to like about this book. For my reading of Star Wars social media, it flew a little bit under the radar. Um, I think people have been using the summer to catch up on High Republic um, and a few of the other splashier titles from earlier in the year. Um, and this was one I wasn't expecting to like a lot. And I think... Um, I was about two-thirds of the way through, and I, I messaged you all and said, like, oh, this this is one you really don't want to skip. It's really got good stuff. I uh, I spoiled uh, Carl only slightly by saying it had his two favorite things, Attack of the Clones, Anakin, and Mace Windu being a jerk. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, and it, it's just a really nice, you know, Star Wars books can be really fun when they fill in a little gap you didn't know you needed filled in. But to understand the experience some of the other Jedi in the kind of Attack of the Clones, into the Clone Wars, into Revenge of the Sith moment, I thought was really worthwhile. A positive that the last third totally delivered on the promise of the first two thirds, but um, it had a lot of really interesting ideas. And, you know, and Jason, similarly, when you, uh, again, you, you, I know you prefer consuming your books via Audible and audiobook formats, um, but you also, I mean, you messaged me when you finished listening and you, just raving about how much you liked the book. Uh, again, kind of the same question that I asked Craig, you know, what was it about this book that, that piqued your love so much? Yeah, well, it, it was just nice to sort of get the... Um into the headspace of someone who starts off as a Jedi and ends up as an Inquisitor. Like, we haven't kind of really gotten that story yet. We've got some very interesting-looking Inquisitors. We know the Grand Inquisitor uh, was a Jedi Temple guard. Uh, you know, many of the Inquisitors were former Jedi, or, or uh, you know, so it was kind of nice to finally get one of those stories in, in detail. Um, you know, how does one fall how does one fall you know i I don't want to say to a lesser extent than like anakin you know from you know the heights of the jedi to sith lord um but how does one transition from being a jedi knight to being an inquisitor uh and it was just one of those things that i found really fascinating and of course uh you know the fact that we start out the opening act Going to Geonosis was already a win in my book because, you know, everybody knows the Geonosis battle is my favorite part of that movie um, and part of why Attack of the Clones is so high on my list of favorite Star Wars movies. So, uh, but just sort of getting into that and diving into it and seeing one character's uh, interpretation of events around them and how they're so close and yet so wrong in, at the same time to what's really going on and how that affects them and takes them on a path that, you know, has fatal consequences in the end was a very interesting thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I, 
I think the thing that stood out most to me from from the book just in general is I love when a Star Wars novel follows kind of the three act structure of the majority of the films. Um, And this this book really seemed to follow that structure. You know, we have uh, kind of part one, which is uh, our main character. I'm curious how you two pronounce your name, although, Jason, you get to hear it because of the audible. I say Iscat. Uh, How did you hear it in your head, Greg? Uh, I think I said Iscat. I think okay. that's how I've heard Delilah say it. Okay. Yeah, it, it's pronounced Iscat in the the novel or okay. the audiobook. So yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually left in in an interview. She said um, authors don't actually get to pick canonical pronunciation. Oh, she, I, I just was fascinated by this idea. So they write the name and they come up with the name. It clears and they make sure. It's, and then it's actually the audiobook producers and narrator who decide what the canonical is. So I think somebody was asking her about uh, the other one, Tao Long, and she's like, well, this is how I've said it, but I haven't heard it yet, so I'm, I'm not sure. So <laughs> very interesting behind-the-scenes peek. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, kind of part one is her, her involvement with the Clone War. Um, I would say part two is just kind of her her sense of uh, disconnection with the order, and then part three is essentially her journey as an inquisitor. Um, and like you right. said, Jason, right? We haven't we haven't gotten this explicit story yet. You know, the inquisitors were introduced to us in 2015 with rebels, um, and we obviously learned that the Grand Inquisitor was a former Jedi, and uh, and we've seen more and more of their story expounded in things like Kenobi. Um, so it was neat to just kind of get a story like this that follows the path of somebody who was once a Jedi who becomes an inquisitor. Um, and I think Iscat is a very, um, is a very interesting character. And, and, you know, Greg, we've had this conversation a few times in the past couple of years when you've been on talking about some of these newer Canon novels about, you know, one of the primary differences. And, and, and I say this as somebody who's currently doing a kind of uh, release order reread of the old legends books from the nineties, um, you know, one of the, the, the biggest differences between the Legends books of the 90s and the new canon novels is just the types of stories they're telling. You know, the Legends books were very plot driven, whereas these stories today tend to be very character driven um, with with plot often coming secondary and, and not not in a submissive way. But character tends to be the biggest pull, I would say, of a lot of the new canon books I've read, uh, where that's very much less so in the Legends era. Uh, and I think that's what's good is I think Iscat's a very compelling character. It's it's neat to get a character. Um, I mean, it's not a new trope that there are characters in the Jedi Order in this era who are kind of strafe or, or, or a little uncomfortable with what the Jedi are becoming. I mean, Bears Offy is a great example. Obviously, Anakin. <laughs> um, right. So it's it's neat that she is a character who just can't seem to find her place. And that's I think so much of her character story is trying to find her place as a Jedi and then a force user. Um, and I think that's to me, what was most compelling about the book as well. Um, but all that said, uh, you know, what we are very good at doing here, Jason is just talking about favorite things in star Wars. Uh, and that'll be no different (laughs) when we look at, at this particular story. Um, so I want to I, I want to invite you uh, first of all, Greg. You know, uh, as as kind of the keeper of the lore, and this maybe is an unfair setup, um, but as you know, I you are the closest friend I have that reads all the Star Wars stuff, and I can always rely on you to 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 ask canon questions. Um, was there anything in particular from this book that uh, you know piqued your interest as kind of 
um, a canon scholar, if you will? Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot, and I, I certainly want to agree with a lot of what you just said, that I, I do think it seems that Legends books were pitched on, here's a cool thing for Luke Han and Leia to do, whereas modern canon books seem to be pitched on, have this idea for a character, and let's do something. I, d- I don't know if it's the canon reset or some other factor that kind of has inspired them to try to stay a little more on the margins most of the time or well margins in terms of characters or in terms of like moments in history so we might get a han solo book but it's way away from everything else that is established about han solo we kind of stay on the edges um so i thought you know there were some previously established canon bits that were woven into this um carl knows that Charles Soule Darth Vader run is near and dear to my heart. And that's actually where Iscat uh, debuted, but not actually named um, and uh, Tualon. Um, both of them are appeared in the Darth Vader uh, comic book, which is the, I believe the second arc of that comic book. There's the Kieran Gillen uh, that introduces Dr. Aphra and a few others uh, characters, Black Kersantan, who's now, come to live action um and then there's the uh the charles soul book um on darth vader and so we met these inquisitors kind of uh and and that's where this novel ends right is with the the last piece of this novel is is actually the piece of canon that was already established for them um but there's also some really loving connections over to uh, Brotherhood by Mike Chen, which I know Carl hates. He, you know, all the time is just talking about how much he hates Mike Chen and how he broke canon. Uh, I, I can make that joke because listeners know that it's the exact opposite of what's true. Um, so reworking the scene of Anakin's knighthood in that moment and kind of adding around it um, the character who is Joe Castanews, um uh, apprentice assistant Noxie, I believe, is from Brotherhood. Um, and then just, I think you are also rightfully pointed out, the Inquisitorious has been growing like mad lately, right? Where So if you take what we saw in Rebels, then you take, um, uh, as, as you pointed out, uh, Reva's story in Kenobi, then you take um, Jedi Fallen Order and Jedi Survivor, more the first of the two which gives us three other uh inquisitors i have a lot of trouble telling them apart when they're like number plus gender i just can't keep them straight that well um so it's really nice to have this moment to be like well let's actually get under the helmet of one and think a lot about this and you know we're recording this not knowing where this the ahsoka show is going but boys i'm talking about getting under merrick's uh helmet and figure out who he is and um, if this is another piece of that Inquisitor puzzle. So um, so that's what I got for Canon Connections. And in case it wasn't clear, that's the stuff I live for in a good Star Wars book. Like, I really want to expand and understand and see these connections. I, I think they're all generously written. You don't have to know that that's a scene from the comic book or that's a character from Brotherhood. But it's really fun when they can kind of pick up the baton and, and run a little more with a scene or a moment in those ways. I'm glad you clarified that because I felt like the whole scene um, at the end, and and like we said, folks, spoilers for this book, and we're going to be jumping all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason to what order we're talking about this, but uh, towards the end of the book, you know, when when they go to the mission with on the mission with Vader uh, to track down Eth Koth, um, I thought that was in one of the comics. It sounded familiar. 
Uh, but I don't think I have that one. So I was, you know, wondering if that was just something they added sort of like off camera in the comic or if it was something that was uh, actually shown in the comic as well. So uh, it's it's good to to hear that. Yes, no, that's that's actually from the comic itself. So uh, thank you for for clearing that up for me. I appreciate that, Craig. <laughs> I want to. Well, I'm going to talk about that moment real quick because it's it's one of my favorite things that happens in the book. Even even though I love it more for just the little bit of Eth cough. Um, so uh, and and I also did not know this was in a comic until I you know I sent a text to Greg and just said, hey, I really like this. And he's like, oh, that's also from the Vader comic. I was like, oh, nuts, that's really cool. Um, but right, it's, it's that moment. It's 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 in kind of the epilogue of the book, really. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, so Iscot becomes the 13th sister um, and she and a few other Inquisitors are with Vader on a mission. They don't know exactly what they're going after. Um, and there's something that after now having seen, you know, the third episode of Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is kind of that scene of the Inquisitors going to that planet where Obi-Wan's hiding out and Vader just kind of Vader shows up to do the dirty work. You know, they're just there maybe as backup, but, you know, Vader doesn't really need them. And it's the same thing, you know, uh, and I think what was most compelling to me was just the fact that Eth Koth was uh, partnered with a child. Like, I thought that was so cool. Like, uh, here you have a former council member who has yeah. seemingly am- abandoned the tenets of the Order, which I'm just a huge fan of because screw the tenets of the Order. Um, that's why they <laughs> fell. Um, and uh, I, I, so I know this isn't directly even about the main character. I, I just, and so I'm glad you're here, Greg, because does did the comic expand any more on that story around Eth Koth, or is it really just more from Vader's perspective and he's there to kill a Jedi? Yeah, I, I am going to just give the disclaimer that it's been a very long time since mm. I've read that. But that section of the Vader comic is very much um, Vader being tested by Palpatine. Like, it's mm. fresh off of Revenge of the Sith. Uh, I believe that's the arc where they are um, incinerating lightsabers at the beginning, which people got upset about in Mandalorian when Luke suddenly had Yoda's lightsaber because incinerated in the start of that comic Mm. and so um i believe the way that story went is palpatine is kind of testing vader and making sure he doesn't care anymore about the guy so sends him off to hunt down eth koth and that in that arc is where vader proves himself is given mustafar as his fortress that well only his planet at that point but it's like palpatine's like you've proven yourself loyal to me i think this he does get his crystal and tortures it to create his red blade in that arc and then goes and at the end starts a a long run where he builds his mustafar fortress that becomes prominent all over the place after that so um so it, it is i would say it's more action than anything it's kind of like oh let's give chase and and again you kind of think um it's gone one way and there's this nice that's been recreated here just to show you how evil these inquisitors and vader especially are so Mm. um kind of again reminding us anakin fell very quickly but it was complete he wasn't wavering even at this early stage yeah yeah um yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I, I just found it so compelling that Eth Koth has a child. Um, and and I think, i curious what you two think with after I say this, but I thought it was like a, a sort of interesting ending for 
Iscat slash the Thirteenth Sister Sister storyline. In so far as so much of so much of the book is about her trying to uncover this mystery of this character that had left the order that she comes to find out was her mother. Um, and I thought that was a real, you know, a really interesting uh, story point to put in this book. So found it really fascinating that she kind of goes out defending a child with potentially force sensitivity, um, most likely as force sensitivity. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought, I thought that was, I don't know. I thought it was a, a nice way of kind of, I shouldn't say nice way. I mean, she dies, but, but it was an interesting way to kind of wrap her story is this is a character throughout the book. Who's kind of really tortured by the, the mystery of her own past. Um, who's really hungering to know it. And once she learns it, um, you know, it's, I don't know. It, it just, it just made me think that she kind of chooses to go back to the light. I mean, I don't think she sees herself necessarily as a Jedi again at the end of the book, but she kind of steps back into the light by understanding that this child is innocent. This child deserves to be protected. And I think that's why her and uh, Talon make that choice to kind of try to prevent Vader from, from taking the child. Um, so I don't know. I, th- I, I thought that was a sort of bittersweet ending for the character that a character who's also, you know, troubled by her own, her own past is, standing up for a force sensitive child. Uh, We're literally skipping right to the end of the book at this point, but what did did you two think about that? Yeah, it it definitely, you know, obviously as most star Wars is, it had a a nice rhyming beat to it. Um, You know, and it did seem fitting obviously because, you know, of, of just the, the complicated and tempestuous, journey that she's gone on to even find out the answers to her own past and and of course the tumultuous answers to what happened to her mother you know spoiler alert and and uh delilah dawson gives a warning at the beginning of the book we find out her mother killed herself uh because of of her own issues that she was not able to to deal with um especially after she gave uh, is cat over to the Jedi and she was unable to reintegrate back into her own society and decided that the best way to do it was just to, you know, end it all. So, um, which is not recommended obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, so the, the Rocky sort of journey that she goes on the up and down, the ups and downs that she goes on to find out about her own mother, where she fits into her mother's story or not for whatever reason. Um, and then ultimately making that stand um, was an interesting one, but it did feel fitting. Uh, and, you know, to Alan, by the way, that's about the third uh, pronunciation we're going to have on his, this character's name, <laughs> but that's the one I heard you know, over and over again and listening to the audiobook was was to Alan. Um, you know, and he's been sort of the one companion that she's had in and out of her life throughout this whole journey. Um so it was, you know, definitely fitting that not only does she have that sort of motivation that kind of sets her off against Vader at the end, uh, but the fact that for her, she's there with this person that's also been along her journey by her side so many times 
was also sort of nice and in a way helped her find her place finally um, at the very end. Mm. So I'll just build off of what both of you are saying. I, I completely agree that it is meant to be that kind of nice ringing uh, rhyming moment. But to me, it's even uh, more like mainline Star Wars prequels because it's all about attachment, right? Yeah. Um, so much of what has happened to Iscat across this book the the mistreatment is how I would call it by the Jedi or the neglect by the Jedi seemed to be rooted in the fact they were really afraid that if she knew the truth of who she was and her mother, she would feel an attachment and they aren't supposed to feel an attachment. Um, and so all that follows and, and, you know, even Jason was just recounting the story, the tragedy of her mother. Her mother goes back to a society and has trouble attaching, right? Can't reintegrate herself because she's been separated and marked as different in so many ways. And, and just really, I felt those moments, I completely agree. Nobody's endorsing um, self-harm, but to think about how isolating it is to be in a community, feel like there's a place for you and not be able to fulfill that, to actually feel that attachment um, is kind of a devastating feeling, right? And so at the end, we do have this kind of balancing of a tragic end Almost a triumphant end because to me it spoke to the fact that through all of this training, through all of what the Inquisitorius has done, all the awful feelings she has, still going to have that spark of light in her that is an attachment, an attachment to a child going through something similar, an attachment to uh, Dualon, uh, who has remained kind of loyal to her. I mean, that's a little too easy. It's, it's more complicated than that, but has remained kind of loyal to her throughout this book. And it is just that, you know, if there's a, a message to Star Wars, it's that the attachments actually do make us human, and that's what we need to uh, celebrate and pursue, not, um, you know, forbid. And so to me, it just screams like it, so much of this book. I think Delilah Dawson is very respectful to the prequels, and part of what she's doing is saying, you can only do so much in two hours of Attack of the Clones, but I can deal with these same themes and show you in a lot more nuance this Jedi Order's problem is and how this affects an individual. And so it, it is an Anakin story, but it's similar enough that I think it's, it's able to say, hey, you might have missed what the prequels were actually telling you when you were distracted by midi-chlorians or Gungans or whatever the <laughs> internet was angry about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is... Um... Well, and and do either of you, and I just, I can't remember. Do either of you remember the name of her mother? Um, I just sure don't. Hold on. I can, I can look it up. Well, uh, it, not the end of the world. I'll, I'll make my point. Um, but kind of to, you know, to the point you were making, Greg, you know, when she, when she does leave the order and goes back to where she comes from, struggles to connect there and find her place, uh, I, I read this book immediately after finishing my reread of the the original Thrawn trilogy by Zahn, Timothy Zahn. And um, I think one of the best things Timothy Zahn does is world building. I think he writes really good uh, cultural world building. And he, he does that especially well with the Nogri in that original trilogy. And when we were reading some of those chapters where Iskat goes back to that 
to the very village that her mother went to. Uh, Delilah Dawson also similar to Zahn does a really good job of building out that world. Like you, I, I really felt like there was a cultural identity to that space and it's a very, it seems from what I remember, it was a very beautiful culture and uh, a very peaceful one because they invite Iscat to kind of stay, you know, they, there's this invitation mm-hmm. to stay here where there is peace. You know, your mother struggled to do that, but we'd love to help you find a way to integrate here. Um, but I think at this point she's become an inquisitor and, yeah. you know, the, but, but becoming an inquisitor was so great for her because she now had nothing was prohibited to her anymore. Right. She was allowed to look up anything she wanted in the archives. There, there were no prohibitions to her, you know, her thirst for knowledge. Um, and that's what ultimately leaves her defining out, you know, the, the full depth of the truth of what her mother endured. Um, and she's offered then this place of, of, of peace and yet chooses not to stay there. Um, which I just thought was really, really compelling as well. I mean, in, in uh, probably very different reasons than her mother, but she chooses to go back to Coruscant, to go back to this inquisitorious group that is, I would argue, even more toxic than being a member of the Jedi. Um, you know, yes, it, you know, it, it reminds me of exactly what Yoda told Luke in Empire Strikes Back. You know, the dark side is attractive because it's quicker and more seductive, right? And I think yeah. that was what, you know, Iscat's initial Iscat's initial uh, draw to becoming an Inquisitor is because there is this promise to get all the knowledge she's been thirsting for for, for much of the story. I, so I, I apologize. I feel like I'm kind of going all over the place right now. <laughs> but oh, weaving through fine. all these threads. But, that, that you know, I mean, the book literally opens with her and her former master, uh, December Vey, I think, or whatever the heck her name is. Yep. Um, you know, on a mission to recover an old Sith text, you know, and it's kind of so curious about Sith knowledge and stuff. And I think it's less so because she has an infatuation with the dark side and more so because she has an infatuation with knowledge. Um, but that's being denied to her because it's like, no, 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 no you can't know these things because they're off limits. They're bad. Right. You know, again, yeah. a reminder yeah. of kind of the, the foolishness of the Jedi council of that era. Um, well, it's not just an infatuation of knowledge, but it's an infatuation of knowledge she's not supposed to have, too. Mm-hmm. Like, or like, you know, of, of stuff that's supposed to be like, that's, that's off limits, I should say. Stuff that's off limits. Right. Um, and not to say that, obviously, if she had continued the training under Sember um, and the training that Jocasta New offers her later in the book to join the temple, she probably would have had access to those things. Mm, eventually not not the, not no, not all of it definitely not they would never have let her Maybe. understand the truth of her mother um well no no no. but i'm talking about the the artifacts the sith artifacts oh sure so yeah you know not 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 obviously no not about her mother uh because none of the jedi are supposed to really look into their parents even though a lot of them tend to um but uh yeah the the jedi the the, the sith texts and stuff she probably would have but you know she went a different path uh, because she didn't feel like she fit. So, and her mother's name is Freya, by the way. I looked that up. Thank you for you. So, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, but yeah, reminiscent the- of uh, Thor's mom, right? Freya yeah. in Norse North mythology. So, mm. <laughs> Norse mythology. I think I said North just then. Norse <laughs> mythology. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. You know, but but to your point, you're right. You know, Jason, to what you're saying, I think that was another 
aspect of Iskat's character that I found quite interesting is, you know, she, she, she reminded me of sort of like a petulant adolescent who, you know, is obsessed with knowing the things you're not supposed to know, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's, that there's, there's two sides to that, to that, uh, tactic in a lot of ways. I mean, part of it is, is, is a protection of the person, you know, you, you don't want them to know everything all the, all of a sudden because they may not be ready for it. Um, but at the same time, that prohibition makes it even more attractive. Um, so yeah, you know, I think, I think for Iscat, she, I, I thought that I actually think that was one of my favorite parts of the book is when she does go to her mother Freya's village and and is then given this offer to to stay and be be there with them. Um, you know, I think it was this moment where she's offered a sense of peace that has probably eluded her most of her life. Um, and I, you know, for the life of me, because again, it's been a, been a minute here now since I've read the book, and maybe you two can enlighten me, but. I don't quite remember why she chooses not to stay. Um, you- well, the the tragic thing about it is that by the time she gets there, she has really kind of exalted in sort of the the idea that that what she's good at is is killing and and action and doing things. Um, you know, that's part of why she felt like she didn't really fit into the Jedi is because she was very good at killing, um, and the Jedi, you know, were trying to. We're definitely trying to hit, uh, squash that to some extent. You know, you know, she's killing is not the Jedi way, uh, but she found she was good at it. Uh, even if it, you know, she justified it by being it, it being in defense of others, um, which is probably true to some extent. Um, but she definitely reveled in it. Uh, and by the time when she gets to her home planet, uh, she's part of the Inquisitorius. Uh, so she's definitely out there doing things, you know, the, the action adventure, uh, you know, the, she's finally feeling like in that moment, she is in her element. And the tragic part of the visit is that she gets there and it's a place, like you said, that's a very sort of peaceful pastoral The you know, there's very little influence if any, from the outside world, uh, from from outside of the system itself, because they they don't have interstellar ships um, at, by design. But it's too quiet for her. It's just too quiet. You know, she feels like she's found her place in the galaxy, and she would not be able to do any of that here in this peaceful place where her mother. And she are initially from, even though the the entire clan is willing to welcome her back with open arms unconditionally. Um, and that's sort of the tragic part of it is that where she probably would have been welcomed without judgment is the one place at this point that she feels like she would be absolutely stifled uh, and unable to do what she thinks that she's gifted and capable of doing. Makes sense. <laughs> I'll build off that because, you know, one of the things, so um, I, I think listeners know I, I teach, right? Uh, the, <laughs> as in 12 hours from now, I start my semester. Ooh, almost exactly. I have 8 a.m. tomorrow. Um, <laughs> oh, and so I'm 
thinking a lot about my teaching and, um, you know, this time of year. And, and I think a lot about um, students who are uh, neurodivergent and that for whatever reason, they process things differently or they have a, uh, a need that is not often met. And we had a, a workshop recently where a, a student at my university said, hey, here's the thing we don't talk about. You all design your syllabi with the like most stereotypical perfect student in mind. And spoiler, they exist. They just don't. And that wasn't specific to our university. It was acknowledging that every student has needs. And so when I think about Iscat, I think I see that exact relationship between her and the Jedi Order, right? They are treating her as if she is exactly like everybody else and has the same needs and wishes and so when jason is nicely pointing out like it feels like this society should be where you want to end up but that isn't who she is and it doesn't speak to her in that same way and and i'm, I'm going to be a little sensitive around the fact i'm certainly not saying you know divergence equals sith or dark side please please don't misunderstand me but to think about how from the moment we meet iscat she's not fitting in much like because she wants things that she's not supposed to want, reacts to things in ways that she's not supposed to. And when, for example, she has kind of, you know, something we might think of more as, as you know, mental health difficulty, she has a rage incident. Jedi Order turns her into a rumor mill and a, a laughing stock and doesn't actually work to help her understand and to unpack her rage and her anger in her reaction to these events and so essentially says stuff it down sister <laughs> right like mm. just just fit into the peg instead of actually dealing with the fact that you're different and you have this so when we are talking about the ways in which the the inquisitorious becomes like how she it becomes what she thinks she wants so much of this is just them actually saying who are you and what do you want instead of how dare you be you want what we want, which you know, is, is one of these classic and, and it gets built into the prequels. You know, it's the idea that the Sith tell the truth. The Sith have the right ideas in so many ways. The Jedi have the wrong idea. They just then point it all towards these kind of evil power control ends. And it's really difficult. So um, part of what I reacted to so strongly back to the original question is, I thought we hadn't had a character like this in Star Wars exactly. Somebody who just is struggling to be themselves day to day and to process the world around them. And I think that's really important. And in our, our notes I threw in, you know, the moment Delilah Dawson won me over was the dedication to this book, um, which is so beautifully written. So she opens the book by saying, for those who never quite fit in, for those who were bullied for what they love, for those who have never felt normal, luminous beings are we. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Mm -hmm. um, I raised my fist. I said mm -hmm. something that would get you the explicit tag on this episode <laughs> because that is so good and it's so important. And as a fandom that has become broader and broader – we often try to make sure we paint out our differences. And Delilah Dawson <laughs> stuck up a big middle finger to that idea and said, let's celebrate who we are and let's talk about how it feels to not fit in and how we're going to process that. And I'll, I'll get off my soapbox, but what, what else is myth for but to teach us about how the, to react to the world around us? It's, 
it's really well done and, and beautiful. So I'm so glad we have this in in canon now. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, I I'm so glad you shouted out the dedication, Greg, because I I thought the same thing when I when I read that. It, I think that's something I never used to read dedications, and now I've really gotten into reading them. Um, because I think a lot of times it is it's it's kind of that personal insight from the author right from the get go of what kind, what often maybe inspired this this story that you're about to read. Um, and I remember Sam Maggs had a really beautiful dedication and, and Jedi Battle Scars as well. Um, so now Jason, I don't think you ever get to read, hear dedications because they're not read in audiobooks. Um, so uh, I think this one was okay. I know they're if not that normal. Sounds, so. that, that sounds familiar, Greg, but I, you know, it's been a, you know, a month or so since I've finished listening to this. So that was at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, to your point though, Greg, and I, I guess it, I appreciate how, how, how poignantly you pointed out that, that that dedication is also the purpose of this story. I don't think I quite connected just how connected those things were that, that that really who that's really who Iskat is is she is that outsider she is the one who's never fully understood um, and and people don't care to understand her they'd rather just put her into a box um, and and uh, she was bullied too yeah to lose yeah. one as well right yeah um, yeah so yeah. yeah gosh it it was one of those situations where I kept finding myself thinking uh, that. So much of her journey that was outside of her control, um, if things had been just a little bit different, her story could have been turned around in so many different ways, so many different times. Um, you know, even, you know, even to the point where, you know, her master chose her because of a, a debt of obligation mm. to her mother, mm-hmm. um, and it was obviously not the right fit at all. Uh, the the two of them seemingly always uh, were at crossways uh, in terms of, of how they related to each other. Uh, and Iscat learned from a very young age to just sort of go, yes, master, of course, master, whatever you say, master, in order to just get by, uh, even though she didn't want to do that. Uh, whereas a different master may have been able to help her work out through some of these issues and and difficulties that she had. Um, You know, and obviously the, the younglings that grew up with her after her, her accident uh, Mm. were for the most part, very horrible to her. And there was no uh, sort of discipline against them uh, that should have been there. uh, You know, that could have helped resolve some of those issues caught earlier you know, things like that. There were so many little, little things along the way that Iscat just sort of fell through the cracks in, um, that if even one of those had been fixed, uh, along this journey, she could have had such a, you know, a, a different path. Uh, and it was just, again, this is a, this is a book that's a tragedy because it's about the fall of someone to the dark side and to their ultimate death. At the end of the book, it's not a it's not a happy ending. You know, there's sort of a fulfillment of the story and of of kind of her as a character, but it's not a happy end um, in any way, shape or form. So uh, 
I just found myself really like my my heart going out to her so many times because I'm like, you're, it's just you're, it's that close. Things could have been so different for you. I'm, I'm like my heart breaks for her every time something happens. I'm just like, it, she fell through the cracks again, you know, and and that's 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 one of the, the continuous things I kept reacting to throughout the story um was was that you know she was so close and yet didn't it just it fell apart well i I think there's a great scene in the book uh where she encounters a particular supreme chancellor um (laughs) and 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 i think it's uh, palpatine my goodness i i i would love somebody writing just a Palpatine novel about this era. I mean, I know we've gotten a lot of the story, but we've never got anything really from his perspective, which I think would just be interesting. Um, But uh, Palpatine, you know, she has this brief encounter with him when he comes, I think he's coming to visit the the temple or something. And she, she greets him and they're having a quick one kind of a one-off conversation. And he, he sees her for who she is and acknowledges that she's a good Jedi. She's, you know, she's a, a powerful person with great promise. You know, he sees something in her that all of her Jedi peers do not see. Now, granted, we all know Palpatine. We see, you know, Palpatine sees something that he can use to his advantage. We all know that. But at least in the heat of the moment, I mean, it's the same, it's the same crap he's pulling with Anakin all throughout the prequels, right? Is, is acknowledging that these things that the, the Jedi Order are telling you are wrong about yourself are actually good things. They're, and they're trying to lock up your potential. So I love that Palpatine kind of garners this sense of trust for Iscat in that brief encounter that later on when she's actually invited to be an Inquisitor, she learns that it's through Palpatine. Um, that Palpatine is the one who, and, and we learned through that very story beat that Palpatine's been doing this. He's been he's been courting some other Jedi as well. You know, that's a story I'd love to hear is, is you know, and, and a fun side story to that would probably be Darth Vader being jealous, <laughs> you know, that that Palpatine was courting courting other Jedi. Um, but I thought that was just a, you know, a really neat a little aside that it's it's not a huge part of the story, but it continues that trope of of the Palpatine of this era, that he is a master manipulator and that he is good at seeing the things that the Jedi reject in, uh, in, the, in their own order and kind of saying, no, 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 that's not a bad thing. Um, yeah. So I thought that at was... At the very a- least, he's sowing a little bit of discord among the Jedi. At, uh, and then the best case scenario is he gets someone like Iscat to be an Inquisitor later on. You know, you know that at the very least, it, whether or not it pans out, it doesn't really matter for him. Uh because he's at least just sowing a little bit of discord, a little bit of, of uh, friction amongst the Jedi themselves, uh, which serves his ends anyways. But he does sort of – he sees what she wants, what she craves, and he gives it to her. Obviously, being Palpatine, it's not sincere. Um, but he identifies – you know that that's what Palpatine does. Is he's he can see through and he can he can identify the desire that you have and take advantage of it. Um, and that's what he does in that moment. And she she feels affirmed and uh, and like she's seen and that her abilities are good uh, all in this moment. And it definitely shapes her and motivates her going forward. So. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I want to kind of synthesize those two comments you each made. Uh, when Jason was talking, it was striking to me how the language you were using, um, this is actually the comment before this one more that last one. It was the same language that gets used um, after a kind of mass shooting tragedy, right? How many moments were there almost where we could have prevented this? How many warning signs were ignored? How many times could we have saved lives by including the shooter's lives or, or, or whoever? And I, I don't bring these things up lightly, but to say this is a common thing we think a lot about. And when we have these people in our own society who are lost for whatever reason and are, are considering these really tragic choices, I mean, essentially that is Iska, right? She's, for lack of better language, she's joining a terrorist organization, right, of an awful organization to commit violence. And so I think you were right to point out that there's all these little moments you could do there. And so when Carl made his uh, – points out the Palpatine scenes – I also see modern day, uh, you know, analogies here because what do people who are troubled do? They go on the internet and they find somebody who will affirm their worst thoughts in whatever way. Oh, you're angry because you're not getting far enough in life. Here's who to blame. Here's how you should respond to that in the worst possible ways. And so many people are drawn to toxic internet cultures because they are the first place they feel like they're getting themselves affirmed. And I think we can immediately say that that's Palpatine here, right? It's like mm-hmm. everything you've been afraid to think of yourself, that's the right thing. And that's the good thing. And I, I think both of you are hitting on this language of like, it feels so good to have for Iscat to be recognized for who she is, but so wrong that that's the guy that's mm. who, who does it and the way he'll manipulate her into that. So, you know, the more you two were talking is I was really processing this as, you know, this is a, a book about going to school in certain ways. I mean, mm. it, Jedi are a religion and a school and, and all these things, but felt very much to me like, oh, wow, did Delilah Dawson write a book about what it's like to be a high schooler today and <laughs> kind of try to unpack all these terrible things? I mean, the last one I'll throw in that fire, sorry, is the forbidden knowledge, right? Oh, we're not going to have those books in our library. We're not going to allow you to see that information. And I think, again, that there's a lot of kind of messiness around that as an exact analogy when it's a Sith artifact versus some piece of history or public record. But it also feels like, hey, this is very much in play when we're talking about modern American schools in all these issues. I mean, most of those are uniquely American problems at the moment, which maybe Delilah's asking us to wake up and deal with. So very, very Mm -hmm. interesting because I hadn't seen those sides of this until you both were talking. So I think that's part of the project. Yeah. Uh, it would be an interesting conversation to have with her. That's for sure. Man, this, <laughs> this book is this book is just. I I appreciate your your synthesis of all that, Greg, because it's just making me appreciate the book even more. I mean, I thought it was it was just a great character study of a story uh, with some neat lore building around Inquisitors. But there's, I think, there is just so much more going on um, that that Delilah is is um, dealing with here and. Uh, yeah, what a what a book for our for our era in so many ways, um, and uh, you know, I, I think whenever whenever somebody is telling stories 
about the Jedi of the prequel era. It's always highlighting the aspect that the Jedi of that era were wrong, right? Uh, in, in so many ways that their way of doing things was wrong and that's why they fell. Um, I mean, even the newest Disney Plus show featuring a famous Jedi Padawan, um, you know, she makes a comment in an episode about how, you know, yeah, the Order has done that for millennia, but they they were wrong. They failed, um, you know, and, and, and it's very clear that when folks tell stories about the Jedi of the prequel era, that that's the point, you know, um, is that was the point George made with the prequels is quite quite explicitly, you know, when people. I've seen commentators say like, oh, gee, like makes it seem like the Jedi are just nothing but evil and they were useless. It's like, no, you don't clearly understand how to read nuance, um, which is often true of these YouTube (laughs) creators. They're stupid, Um, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, any sense of intelligence often escapes them. But uh, it's pretty clear that George made it pretty, pretty obvious that this this is not an indictment of the Jedi in and of themselves is an indictment of a dogmatic Jedi order. That's his indictment, you know, and, and I've made this point for, for several years. And I make these, I make this point a lot when talking about star Wars and the context of, around spirituality and religion in, in the work that I do is, um, you know, ultimately that the Jedi are good. The Jedi religion is an important thing that the galaxy needs, but what it doesn't need is to be overly dogmatic when it starts to, put things into boxes, just like when religions start to put things into boxes with their theology, that's when they start diminishing the divine and they start getting it wrong. And that's what the Jedi are doing wrong in the prequel era. Um, and I think Delilah telling this story from a very personal context uh, gives you uh, a, a, an even more in-depth look at, at, at some of their, their shortcomings. Um, you know, I think I think the prequels in general, just the story of Anakin Skywalker, certainly kind of broad strokes that. I think the story of Ahsoka in the Clone Wars it tells it more, most explicitly in a lot of ways. I think in a lot of ways, the story of Ahsoka in the Clone Wars cartoon is, is really a way of uh, – she is our connection to the Jedi Order. Um, she, as an audience, we get to view it through her. And now we get a, now we get a totally different perspective from – a Jedi who never felt connected, who chooses to go to the dark side with the intentionality of finding a sense of belonging, a belonging that she could not find in the Jedi order. That's what's kind of being offered to her through the inquisitors. But I think it, you know, it dawns on her pretty quickly that it's, it's interesting because right. The inquisitors are, you know, they refer to themselves by a number designation, but then brother and sister, right? Like it's very familial right. language. And yet there is no family. <laughs> there's no camaraderie whatsoever. <laughs> Their interactions are always ones of competition and dominance. Um, and if, if I remember yeah. right, it's the fifth brother, right? That she kind of particularly despises and has some encounters with in the book, right? It, it might. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's the fifth one. And uh, obviously he's one that's been in rebels and, uh, Kenobi and Obi-Wan Kenobi. So um, that's sort of like a, a nice tie to someone who's already established, but yeah, it's, it's definitely him. And he's, he's a, a brute and not a pleasant person. And uh, they definitely have a rivalry, she and him. Um, so, and, and you're right. It, it, it is an interesting thing. that's sort of on the titles that they're all given. Uh, it looks like it should be a family, but it's, plainly not they're all at each other's throat all trying to curry favor at the expense of each other Mm -hmm. um 
not not just curry favor by saying, oh, look, I was able to do something great. It was like, no, I was able to do something great because I undercut so-and-so over here mm-hmm. uh, to do it. You know, I stepped on somebody there. You know, Even in you know one of the missions that we get um, later on when she is an Inquisitor and she goes out and she ends up finding uh, the Jedi Padawan who bullied her, killing her, and the Jedi Master who she felt... Uh, ignored her or or put her in the box mm. uh that she didn't fit in and kills him she also finds a jedi that uh Tuolin was supposed to go out and hunt down and kill and she kills that jedi because hey it's a bonus for me and you know who cares what happens to him well yes uh, so rub, her, rub his nose in it yeah exactly she gets to rub his nose in it and you know maybe he'll get punished uh by vader and the grand inquisitor for failing his mission um, and that'll serve him right uh, somehow. So you know that that's that's how they do it, and it's it's really an isolating experience, despite the fact that the titles imply a camaraderie uh, that uh, really isn't there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It, sorry, were you gonna say something, Greg? Uh, nothing, nothing that great. Uh, I, I, it is just so interesting to compare that to the language of master Padawan, right? So you're both making this point well without this, the sidestep, but it's like, yes, it's, it's almost a trick that we are going to be more familial here, except it's not, it's going to be more isolating. And actually what came to mind is callous, right? Uh, the Hmm. brilliant end to that episode of rebels when he's sitting alone in his, his, uh, I don't know, quarters and nobody's happy. He's back. Whereas Zeb's getting hugs and slapped on the back and like, it's all there. And so, you know, the dark side, as you said, quoted earlier, it's the path to many things. It's you know, quicker, easier, but it is lonely and isolating. And even Vader and, and Palpatine are isolated from each other and in competition with each other. So there's there's just no um, actual family there. Um, so that was all I was ruminating on. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and I think... One other thing that just in light of your what you just said, Greg, um, Iscat always had a bit of a flirtation with Tuolan, you know, in the beginning of the book. Right? There, there's clearly a flirtation that's going on there. There's some there's some level of attraction between these two characters. But of course, they know, you know, that's that's forbidden and everything. Um, but again, in that finale where the two of them sort of team up to try to keep Vader away from this child. um there is almost this this coming together in purpose, at least, that allows her. I I I would say a brief moment of tremendous intimate connection with another person that had always been denied to her as part of the Jedi Order, and also to Tuolan. Um, something that was then also equally denied to her as an Inquisitor, because these are your competition; they're not your friends, let alone anything else. But it's in this moment, right in the in. A, if I remember correctly, like the last line of the book is she learned to let go or something like that. Right. She found freedom and like finally letting go. But I think also is in that brief moment. And again, it's a very, as you've said many times, Jason, it was a very tragic ending. Um, yeah. And, and 
that's clearly what I mean. They they are both killed by Vader there at the end. But in that moment, they've come together for a shared purpose. And I think the walls have completely come down and the two of them are, are able to share a sense of intimacy that has always been denied to them up to this point. Right. And they found that beyond the confines of both the Jedi and the Inquisitorious. Right. That 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 sense of connection that is so innately good um, is found outside of the confines of both of those groupings. Uh, I thought was just a very interesting kind of final denouement, if you will, at, at the end of this book. Yeah. And the irony is that the freedom and letting go, as you said, is something that the Jedi tried to get her to meditate on. Mm. Uh, they did it in a you know very ham-fisted way that felt like it was a punishment, uh, for sure. But a punishment to be sure, way, but a welcome one. Sorry. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, in her roundabout way, she figured it out uh, at the very end, and that's that's sort of the fulfillment of everything that we get. Which is sort of a it's a nice way of saying, "Hey, she's she's okay as she dies." So, <laughs> which you know. We, we got to have in this sort of book, but yeah, it's uh very interesting. Yeah. I do like it now. <laughs> um, so, so kind of just starting to bring this conversation then to a close. Is there, you know, is there any particular uh, story beats, themes, moments from the book that you feel like, Oh, I, I really meant to mention this and I didn't go ahead, For- Greg. Um, I feel like we've through so much of the book, but almost skipped a lot of the beginning. We, it's gotten mm. a couple message, uh, messages, but it is really fun to see um, some really important moments from Attack of the Clones and mm-hmm. um, period from a new perspective, uh, often literally, right? Often rooms we've been before, but a different perspective. And um, again, I just want to say I read those early chapters as Delilah expanding and continuing George's project in so many nice ways. Because, again, I, I, if I'm on Wampa's Lair, I got to speak prequel to you. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there's the very silly scene um, where R2-D2 is fighting with a droid to get pancakes for Anakin and Padme on the refugee ship. And Anakin kind of gives a thesis for these movies, which is, you know, the Jedi Order um, ask me to not form attachments, but I'm supposed to have great empathy to all living creatures. And what is that but deep love for everyone else? I butchered the exact dialogue because I, I don't speak prequel as fluently as you two do. But I do think that that is central hypocrisy of the Jedi, right? That they want you to feel this great empathy and love and are so dang cold to each other and don't express that love. And, you know, I, I, I read a lot of brotherhood as being about that too. Like it's only when Anakin and uh, Obi-Wan can really think of themselves as, as brothers that they, they kind of find their good rhythm. They find that connection. And here it's just like, People who hate the prequels have a million reasons, but if if you're somebody who says, I wanted the Jedi to be great, just wasn't the project, but the message we get instead is you can have all the right beliefs and still do it wrong. Mm. And I I really enjoy that as a kind of message of myth because 
in my world, in myself included very much in this, I think if I'm right about something, then I just have to be right about it. And that's all that matters. But no, you actually have to practice your values. You have to think about whether or not you are living up to them or expressing them the right way. So, you know, and, and I think when, when Carl was talking about how it is back to the dogma of the Jedi being the problem and that it stifles you away from, you know, the divine nature of the force, I think that's absolutely right. And that the force would be asking you to form that connection between these living beings and yet the Jedi just aren't there. So all of that, but especially when it's kind of expressed as Mace Windu just being a total tool, it's really wonderful to read. <laughs> oh, yeah. he's He definitely features um, in not a great light in this book. So <laughs> shall we say? Yeah. The only thing, you know, and, and yeah, he's con- Mace Windu is constantly showing up in some new books as just being a continued butthead. Uh, but the only thing that I've ever read that has ever given any justification to Mace Windu's kind of uh, thick-headedness is Matthew Stover's uh, Clone Wars novel, which is obviously now a Legends book, but uh, Shatterpoint. Shatterpoint, uh, yeah. Where you really get when Mace Windu goes back to where he comes from and you see the world that he he came out of, even though it's not like he grew up there because he was a child when he was taken. But all to say, he has seen kind of the worst of the chaos of the galaxy, and that's what he really believes in the Republic for. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he's very good at being a butthead, but, uh, you know what, just out of, out of severe appreciation for Greg, I, I just wanted to pull this up for us really quick. Forbidden compassion, which I would define as unconditional love, essential to a Jedi's life. And so you might say that we are encouraged to love. Thanks, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> and thank, I thanks, can't Anakin. I forgotten it was compassion, not empathy. I feel like such a, a blockhead, but glad you had the actual. Actually, when I saw Hayden uh, about a month ago, he said that to me personally. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh goodness! Oh, that's um, great. Um, I, I love that we're we're taking uh, as gospel Anakin's interpretation of the Jedi Code. Um, <laughs> when he's trying to impress Padme. Uh, so <laughs> when he's trying to get with a woman. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. That's, that's the, obviously the best reading on the whole situation. Um, <laughs> I love it though. Uh, but no, I, I think the only thing I wanted to mention that we hadn't already got to um, is the character of Hizo. Um, who's hmm. this, uh, this tech guy he's a he's a droid tech uh that works in the jedi temple um and uh iscat runs across him as you know someone that she kind of is able to uh, kind of talk things out with and express herself in ways that she doesn't feel like she can with the jedi because you know he's not a jedi he he doesn't judge her he he actually we find out uh throughout the course of events that he uh was a Padawan or was a, a youngling mm-hmm. as a Jedi, but didn't pass the trials um, and basically flunked out. Uh, so now he's working in the Jedi temple as a droid tech um, and that he's also a mole for Palpatine um, throughout the course of the story, which I, based on some of the things he was saying, I started to suspect he had 
uh, more nefarious purposes and, you know, uh, uh, motivations, I should say. Um, after about the second or third visit that she had with him, I was like, there's something off about this guy. I'm not sure what it is yet. Um, but I did like the sort of slow burn that we get that we kind of, you know, peel back a little bit more and more about who he is and what he was and, uh, who he's working for. And ultimately we find him working at the, uh, the, the inquisitorious, um, I forget what the name of their, their clubhouse is. Um, but, uh, he's working there and because he basically fed all of his, all of the conversations that Iscat had with him to Palpatine and the grand inquisitor, uh, she just cuts him down without remorse because, mm-hmm. uh, he was supposed to keep her secrets and did not. So, yeah. Well, and, and, and to that point, Jason, it, he, he, I really liked him it, it, throughout the story because, because especially, you know, during her time as a Jedi, uh, and, and, and specifically, you know, after coming back from Geonosis and having lost her master and not really knowing her place among the Jedi, he is this character who she feels a genuine connection to, right? He, he, mm-hmm. he seems like a genuine friend. And then, like you said, when she learns kind of the truth of it, uh, that he's really just keeping tabs on her for for different purposes. Yeah, she has no qualms in cutting him down, literally. Right. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, just I, a I, shout out. He's 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 a Salonian, which is from the Corellia trilogy, which is the first set of Star Wars books I ever read. Uh, Assault on Corellia, Showdown at Center Points, the third yeah. one. The second one has Salonia in the title. Um, so ambush at Corellia, assault on Salonia, showdown at center point. Yeah. Um, infamously Salonians were on the cover of star Wars galaxy magazine when I was first a fan and they're just a giant ferret. So this <laughs> image gets passed around of Han Solo punching a giant ferret and people are like, yeah, maybe, maybe we needed to let legends go. Uh, between that and the horse pilot, I think, uh, those, those are the ones that send people that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually oh, had to look. I'm, I had to look up I'm what googling a, this picture. I had to look up a Salonian when I was reading the book because I didn't know what those were, and then I remembered that I that's one of the few legend stories even back in the day I've never read. Um, so I'm I'm excited to get to those in the near future. But yeah, how have I never seen this? I have definitely before. seen that picture, and I always just thought it was something from a comic. Actually, Greg, I didn't realize it was from those stories. I was like, okay, Hans fighting a ferret, cool. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, that is a hilarious. Yes, guys, if you haven't seen this picture, you need to just Google Salonian and find the picture of Han Solo uh, in a fist fight with a giant ferret I should just in use, what looks like a dungeon. I so should just use that as the cover art for this episode, even though it has nothing to do with Rise of the Red Blade. <laughs> <laughs> really confused people. Be like, wait, what is what? What? <laughs> Attack, Revenge of the Salonians. Um, yeah. That's the episode. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, um, any anything else that you wanted to uh, make sure that you brought up, Carl, before we start wrapping this up? No, no. I think uh, we we had all the big things that I, I was excited to talk about. Um, but be, but before we do wrap it up, um, just want to thank Greg again for making the time to be on here. Greg is 
Greg is definitely the journeyman of podcasts as, as the world goes on. But Greg, you also have your own shows that I'd love for you to share with folks, as well as your um, your Substack blog. Uh, especially, I loved the post you wrote, I think, last week or maybe the week prior about uh, just kind of the, the generational understanding of Star Wars through fandom. I, I God, I loved that article. And you know, I remember you, you were telling Ben and I about it bef- before you had published it. And uh, Man, I, after you wrote that, I was like, geez, I really wish we were having you on just to talk about that article because I was just so intrigued by it. Um, but all that, all that said, how can folks uh, get involved with the projects you're involved in? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so the easiest thing to do is I finally thought, like, why should I keep uh, just uh, having to list tons of stuff? Just go to IonCanon.com, U-I-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N, and you can grab uh, that links directly to my Substack, which uh, the most recent article published yesterday, September 4th, as we're recording this, is a list of all my podcast projects. So I am reviewing Ahsoka with Rebel Base Card. I am reviewing films with the long take review featuring former guest of the show, Jen Subchakshai, who hosts over there. Uh, Jen Sakshai Bankard, excuse me. And uh, I also do a podcast with Tyler, former guest of the show, uh, about Wheel of Time, which is uh, an endless project that we have endeavored upon. And we're three <laughs> books in and like 12 more to go. I don't know. I, I It's it's like the rest of my life. It often references like, so when we talk about this in 2032, and I'm like, wait, what? Um, so we'll see. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> we are going to go strong. So, uh, And, yes, thank you for that, that plug of, for the Star Wars Generation uh, blog post. I just had a lot of fun thinking about the ways in which Star Wars fans are different from each other and how we might celebrate what strengths each of those groups has instead of belittling each other and yelling at each other about how our generation's um, fandom is better than your generation's fandom. Um, and so I had a lot of fun thinking about it. I've gotten a lot of people responding, well, you got it right, except, and then explaining how it's totally wrong. But that's what's fun about writing on the internet. And I'm totally there to hear those ideas and thoughts. And some of them are really making me think too. But um, it's very much a blog post that is not trying to dictate to anybody what their fandom is. It's more trying to say, um, what are the types of fans we have out there and what kind of groupings might we be in? Um, And it was fun. So thank you for all that. People can find it ioncanon.com great thanks that's Greg. e-y-e i on canon uh dot com not not the ion canon at on hoth that that's a totally different thing um, <laughs> um and then carl if people want to uh weigh in on anything that they liked about this book or anything that we said during this conversation where can people get in contact with us yeah, well, um, our mainstay lately has been uh, over on Instagram, which is uh, the Wampas Lair. And you can always follow us on Twitter at Wampas Lair or email us at Wampas Lair Podcast at gmail.com. Excellent. And uh, any final thoughts before we close this out? Nope. That'll wrap it up. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to this episode of the Wampas Lair Podcast. This has been episode number 526 Rise of the Red Blade for Carl. And Greg, I'm Jason, and we'll see you next time here in the Wampa's Lair. <laughs>